This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, the New York-based Skivvies return to New Orleans with their undie rock mashup of holiday favorites. And we'll have the latest on what new research reveals on NOLA's all-charter school system. But first... Last month, Orleans Parish Sheriff Susan Hudson announced plans to upgrade jail communication services by offering tablet devices to detainees in the Orleans Justice Center. Under the plan, anyone incarcerated at the jail would be allowed to use the tablets to contact doctors, lawyers, and loved ones on the outside. Bobby Jean Missick has been reporting this story for Verite News and joins us now for more. Bobby Jean, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Diane. What exactly will the tablets be used for? How will they be distributed and monitored? So Sheriff Hudson has said that the tablets would be used for making phone calls to families, to lawyers, but residents would also be able to use them for educational opportunities that go beyond the scope of what the jail can offer them. Also, they can make and monitor their medical appointments through through the tablets. And they can download media, you know, watch movies, listen to music. And I do know that Sheriff Hudson wants to have a tablet per resident. So for folks that are just coming into the jail, they might not get a tablet as they're just an intake and they might be processed out quickly. But once they're given an outfit and and assigned a cell or assigned a unit, then they would have access to a tablet. The idea of bringing tablets to jails is one I haven't heard before. Is there any precedent for this? Other states that have offered this and seen success? Yeah, so jails and prisons all over the United States now use tablets. And I think success depends on who you talk to. There are many advocates for incarcerated people that say that while tablets do allow for people to to stay in greater contact with their family members, which we know reduces recidivism. While that's a positive, the cost of getting that multimedia, of making those phone calls, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, can can be quite high for, for residents and their families. In her announcement, Sheriff Hudson said she hopes bringing in tablets will reduce violence in the jail. How might this effort do that? So during uh, her city council budget hearing in November, Sheriff Hudson was asked about this. And she said that, you know, she's in communication with other sheriffs around the country who have used tablets. And she said anecdotally that every sheriff she's spoken to has said it brings down violence in the jail. And, you know, when I talked to someone from the Department of Corrections in Connecticut, which has introduced tablets a few years ago, they also said, you know, anecdotally, staff will tell you that it it does reduce tension and that, you know, people in jail, you know, they they want ways to occupy their time. and, And this is a way to do that. There hasn't really ever been a formal study to show that tablets reduce violence. But anecdotally, that's what we hear. Now, currently, those incarcerated at the jail have to pay to use the phone. But according to this plan, using tablets to make calls will still cost money. 
So how are these tablets going to be better? And will the calls at least be cheaper? So that's the big thing, right? The cost, um, you know, and speaking to to Wanda Bertram from the Prison Policy Initiative, she was basically saying that, you know, these tablets are really attractive to the telecommunications companies because a lot of the services on there are not regulated uh, the way that the phone calls are. We have seen a reduction in jail and prison phone call costs over, over the last decade or so. That is a concern for everyone involved. Sheriff Hudson campaigned on the idea that she would push for free phone calls for residents at the jail. She says that that's not possible right now, but that she's hoping to include a budget line item in in the budget for 2025 so that those calls can be you know that cost won't won't go over to residents and their families basically that would be taxpayer supported calls i think the way that the tablets are going to be better is there's going to be a lot less fights over phone use which you know most people who've been incarcerated will say phones are one of the greatest sources of tension in carceral spaces to my knowledge the calls will not be cheaper so right now, you know, residents pay roughly 20 cents per call. I think it's around $3 for every 15 minutes. And I think that that's going to stay that way. Bobby Jean Missick is a reporter for Verite News. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. An outrageous holiday show returns to Le Petit Theater in the French Quarter. The Skivvies, Best in Snow, promises a wild show performing mashed-up versions of holiday favorites in this undie rock, featuring musicians Lauren Molina and Nick Searley. Lauren and Nick are here. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Hello. You are the Skivvies. I hadn't heard that word in a long time. Tell us more about yourselves. Where are you based and how did you come up with the concept for this show, Best in Snow? Well, thank you for having us, Diane. Um, So we came up with this idea in 2012 when Nick and I were hanging out in my living room and we decided to put a cover song up on YouTube. And uh, we decided to strip down Rihanna's We Found Love, which is a very, you know, overproduced uh, kind of techno dubstep kind of vibe. And we stripped it down to guitar and ukulele and made it into a waltz. And we were setting up the video camera trying to decide what to wear for the uh, video. And I was walking around in my bra and Nick said, why don't you just wear that? (laughs) And I said, oh, well, we are stripping down the music. I guess we could do a whole stripped down music series for YouTube and never comment on it. And then my boyfriend uh, from uh, the kitchen yelled, uh, you should call yourselves the Skivvies. And we thought that's a really cute name. And uh, so basically, you know, Nick and I have uh, Broadway theater backgrounds um, and met doing children's theater in 2003. But the Skivvies were born in 2012 and we haven't looked back since. We just consider it our costume, our uniform. Uh, our arrangements are stripped down with the quirky instrumentation that we do. And so we just decided to also follow suit with our with our costumes as well, stripping down the arrangements musically and physically. How do you describe the show? Is it a comedy? Is it burlesque, a musical or maybe all of the above? 
I would say it's a little bit all of the above. For the most part, it's a comedy concert of musical holiday favorites mashed up with all different types of songs, crossing genre and vibe. You know, we have characters that come out and do songs um, such as Mother Mary or A Frosty the Snowman. Um, So we have people playing themselves and also people playing characters. And when I say a mashup, you know, we do something like um, We Got the Beat with Little Drummer Boy or Frosty the Snowman with I'll Stop the World and Melt With You. Um, where we can holiday classics and turn them on their heads to make (laughs) you listen to them in a different way, specifically focused on the comedy of it. So like we consider Frosty the Snowman quite possibly the saddest Christmas song ever written since he dies. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, you know, the the burlesque aspect of it is just, you know, being in our undies and um, showing a little skin and that shouldn't be anything new for New Orleans. (laughs) That's true. If Santa was checking on this show, would this be on his naughty or nice list? I would actually say 50-50. You know, we send out a really joyful, positive message, and um, there is um, some adult humor, uh, which might put us on the naughty list. But um, I would hope that Santa's pretty progressive by now. I think that Santa would say, ho, ho, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what he would say. Oh, ha. <laughs> now, you guys play an array of musical instruments. Let's talk about some of them and tell us more about what's on the program and some of the um, eccentric originals that we might hear from you. Well, um, one eccentric original is a Hanukkah song called It's Beep Hanukkah. Um <laughs> And we decided to write that song as a sort of a sexy Hanukkah song that felt like there wasn't, it felt like there wasn't a sexy Hanukkah song in the, in the, um, you know, uh, Hanukkah song song list. Yes. So, um, so that one is really fun and full of puns. Um, And what else can we expect, Nick? Well, I mean, I love that because we, since we wrote that one and it is, we, we have a hard time, you know, when you listen to holiday songs on the radio, they really are very Christmas based, but you don't get hardly any Hanukkah songs. So I really love that we represent that. Um, and then as far as the, the mashups are concerned, I mean, I like to let the audience know, especially if they haven't come to a Skibby show before, that you're, you know, if we have a song list of 15 songs, you're not going to hear just 15 songs. Some of the songs do contain about 27 songs. So by the end of the show, you will have heard hundreds of songs. Um, like snippets of songs, you know, little, uh, you know, choruses or a one line. And, and that's part of what makes our show so fun is that if you are especially a music lover, our arrangements take you all over the place. We have a, a song called the Alchemedley, which is literally any song you can think of that has a mention of alcohol in it. Um, we throw it in there. And I, I think that song has about like 40 snippets of songs in it, but um, it's really fun to sing. And it's almost like listening to a mixtape where it's just like surprise after surprise of what comes next. Wow. What would you say will be most memorable for audiences attending this show for the very first time? Hmm. Um, If you've never seen the Skivvies, I think we are a really specific niche of comedy where it meets um, musical theater, pop, 
comedy and cabaret. It's not just like, oh, standing up here and singing a song. We really are interactive with the audience. There's one um, thing that I definitely want to do again called the text message song where we take a cell phone from an audience member and um, they, um, <laughs> they, I go through the, their text messages and find um, one that seems appropriate and we musicalize it on the spot. That is always very memorable and hilarious and I remember last year's was extra, extra special. I also think in our shows, because we do juggle a lot of instruments, specifically in the holiday show, we play boomwhackers, glockenspiels, um, choir bells, in addition to our cello and ukulele, um, that I do think uh, people who go to a concert may not expect to see those um, instruments. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, One last question. Is there an age recommendation for this show? I'd say PG-13. Yeah. It depends on how mature your kid is. Musicians Lauren Molina and Nick Searley are the skivvies. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. presents the Skivvies Best in Snow. Performances run December 20th and 21st. More info is online at lepetittheater.com. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Consider. I'm Diane Mack. We're in the midst of New Orleans' annual public school enrollment process, and it's pretty complicated. The city has the only all-charter school system in the country, and there's no neighborhood zoning, which means children can attend pretty much any school. That leaves families with a lot to sort through. To learn more about school choice, education reporter Aubrey Juhas spoke to John Valent, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who conducted research as part of the Education Research Alliance for New Orleans. So first question, I started by saying how complicated the process is and very overwhelming to some parents. What should the main takeaways from this research be for parents who are maybe going through this right now? Yeah, so the process is complicated. It actually is designed to be less complicated than it has been in the past. And for a while, the way it was set up was each school really operated as its own island. So they would have their own application and they would sort of run their own lotteries and make their own um, enrollment decisions. And what emerged out of that, out of that kind of like radical decentralization that New Orleans had soon after Hurricane Katrina was a lot of problems. And so you had, for parents, it was an enormous hassle to have to run around the city and try to drop off all of these applications on time with different deadlines. And so the system that, that New Orleans has now is what we call a unified enrollment system, where families request up to a certain number of schools with a single application, and then there is an algorithm that, that places students in schools based on family school requests and how many seats are available in these different schools, and then the priorities that different schools use to figure out who gets a seat when you have more requests than you can accommodate. 
And so the system, it sounds complicated because it is this sort of unusual system that we don't have in a lot of places across the country. But actually for parents, the advice is pretty simple. So the advice, the sort of best way to navigate that system is first of all, to be sure that you get that application in on time before the deadline. And then the second part of it, and this is where there's sort of lots of, of myths and ideas floating around, is there really is one best strategy as a parent, and it is to rank your first choice first and your second choice second and your third choice third all the way down. And so if you, if you can sort of figure out which schools you most want for your kids and you can rank them and then you get that application in on time, it's actually a pretty simple system. But there is certainly some complexity and some confusion surrounding it. In one of the studies, you guys look at, at this policy change that we've been talking about, which was the school district essentially saying to charters, OK, you all have to use this common application. We don't want families to have to run around and do all these different things. Um, and you guys in particular, you're looking at the schools that enrolled a disproportionate share of white students that were then required to come into this process, you know, what what kind of happened there? And and just for folks who maybe need a little bit more context, you know, these, these sought-after schools, while they are a part of the general application process, like if they're selective, there are still additional things that families have to do. So maybe it is fair to say that there are barriers still, but there are fewer barriers than there once was. So what was the impact that you guys saw in terms of making these schools all participate in the common application process? What we see is that there aren't enormous changes in their test scores and their other outcomes. So it's not like entering those systems suddenly like really changed fundamentally what the schools were all about. But it did create more opportunities and, and higher enrollment for Black students and students of color in particular. So in entering that system that is the most visible and accessible system that, that we have, uh, we, do, we do see that you do open up some seats. Now, it's not like the schools didn't change overnight in their demographics or in, in anything else, but they're a sort of at the margin. There were additional seats and additional opportunities were made available. And, and when we were talking about the barriers that, that exist in a city like New Orleans, where you do have all of this school choice all over the place, a lot of those barriers are actually about information and that it's very hard as a parent to learn about all of the schools that are out there and even to know that you, you can request that school and that school is available to you. And it is much easier um, to make sure that parents are sort of aware of their options when those schools are all participating in this system. And you can sort of find the information and the ways of requesting the schools in the same place. I'm Aubrey Juhas, and I'm speaking with John Vallant of the Brookings Institution about new research into New Orleans school choice process. John, the other study, which we were the lead researcher on, is maybe a little bit wonkier for people who hear algorithm and maybe like start to tune out a little bit. Um, but to break that down, you guys were looking at some of these priority categories that play a role in the enrollment process. Can you kind of walk us through, like, when we talk about priority categories, what does that mean exactly and how are they playing a role when people put in their school choices that are ranked. Super wonky, but bear with me, because this is one of those things that is quietly really important. And so in, in New Orleans and in systems like this, when schools get more applications than they can handle, they have to figure out, well, we have, you know, we have 50 applications, we can only offer 20 seats. So which 20 students are going to get those seats? And what NCAP does is it uses these priorities. So it'll say, well, maybe first in line, it'll be siblings of current students, or it'll be kids who live in the geographic area, or whatever it may be. There are these this sort of mix of priorities. 
And what we want to know is who those priorities ultimately benefit, because there's nothing in the priorities that says, for example, that kids of a certain race should have priority over kids of another race. That would be illegal, and that is like very clearly not part of that process. But you can have real equity issues if the priorities that are used tend to favor some groups over others. And so that's that's sort of the question that we're, we're trying to understand there. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, I think the assumption that a lot of us have when we look at the priority, especially the neighborhood priority, is that it's going to benefit whiter and wealthier families just because of where some of these sought after schools are located in the city. D- did that preconception maybe line up with what you guys found? That That is exactly right. And because of that, so when we compared, and in our data go back a few years, so we're looking at, at sort of a, a glimpse from the past. Um, but when you when you look at what happens when, for example, white applicants and black applicants request the same school for kindergarten, we find that white applicants are much more likely to get it. So they're requesting the same school as their first choice school. There's no priority that says that white students should have priority over black students or anything like that. But that arises because that geographic priority is so strong and it so clearly tends to benefit families who live around these highly sought after um, kind of popular oversubscribed schools. And it is often white families and wealthier families who live near those schools and get that priority. So we've talked about, you know, what what parents can do. This is a situation where it's like, you, you know, the takeaway from this in terms of equity is, you know, what can district leaders do? You know, how can maybe the enrollment system be thought of more thoughtfully so that you don't have correlations like this that further cement inequities in the city? Um, what, what should the takeaway from this be when we look at the priority categories? Yeah. And I, so I think there's a real opportunity here, because if you think about systems across the country, geographic priority is everywhere, whether you have a school choice system or you don't. I mean, in places where kids are assigned to school just based on where they live, you are really right. hardwiring those, you know, those, those preferences in. And in New Orleans, it is a very clear policy process where people get around and they talk about what, what are the priorities that we want. I mean, sibling priority, for example, is one that if, if you have kids and you have more, I have two kids, and sibling priority makes a lot of sense from that perspective because you want your kids to be able to go to the same school. But those, those conversations about which priorities do we have, which do we want, and then how do we actually write that into an algorithm that's going to place kids in schools, that, that has real implications for access and equity in a city like New Orleans. And that conversation, people should engage in that because you want those those priorities to reflect the values of a community. And there's an opportunity in the sense that it is a very explicit statement of this is who we think ought to be first in line when we do not have enough seats. And I should say that it, at the end of the day, it is uh, we're talking about kind of how you allocate a scarce number of seats that families want, and that is never going to be satisfying. So the actual end-of-the-day solution to this problem is there just need to be more schools and more seats that families want, and they need to be where families live and want to access those schools. So the, the true solution to the problems is not just to figure out some kind of magical way of how do we, how do we allocate too few really good seats, but it's to create more of those seats that families really want. John Ballant is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure, Aubrey. And we should say New Orleans' main round of school enrollment is open through January 19th. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, reporter for Verite, 
Badu Jean Misik, education reporter Aubrey Juhans, and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, John Valen. From the Skivvies, musicians Lauren Molina and Nick Searley. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.